0: It is a joy to see you with us at this special service and occasion. <clears throat> Please open your Bibles to Isaiah 48. Every year on the last Sunday of October, we have a special <clears throat> Reformation service. If you are wanting to know more about the other solas, I encourage you to go online and find them <clears throat> This is our last one, which is sola, solely dear gloria. More than five hundred and three years ago, the Lord emboldened a Augustinian and Augustinian monk through opening his eyes by reading both Romans and Galatians. It became evident that the gospel of justification was muddied and that people thought that their greatest need was what God could give materially with regards to possessions. They missed the fact that there was a greater spiritual need in their life. Why? Because the gospel in the medieval age was lost. This moment in history, this reformation moment in history changed the direction of the church and affected us even today. The gospel was redeemed from the clutches of corrupt political priesthood, and I say political because what we often forget is that during this time, after the uh, the rise of Constantine, the church and state became one. So decisions was made. Theologically, but also under the canopy of the government. Government always interfered with what the church could do. In the Reformation, however, there was a break between church and state and the recovery of the gospel and the glory of God. Isaiah 48, verse 9 for my name's sake I defer my anger for the sake of my praise I restrain it for you <clears throat> that I may cut that I may not cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my name's sake for my own name's sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That is the ultimate goal of God's actions. He acts not purely for the benefit of his people, he acts not merely because He loves His people. While that is true, God acts first and foremost for Himself. Whether it is deferring His anger or demolishing the sin that separates us, God acts for God. If God should act for any other reason, Take note of this. If God acts for any other reason, then the object for which he acts receives the glory. Make sense? If God acts for you, if God acts to save you first and foremost, then the object of his action is you. That means glory is snatched away from him. But if God acts for God, in the salvation or redemption of His people, then who receives the glory? God. This is what sola Gloria, is about. Salvation proclaimed in Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all this must take place because God is the sovereign monogistic Savior who calls and saves and redeems people For his own glory, he alone says, for the praise of his glory. Any other reason would steal glory from God, that's where I am going. That is a sermon in synopsis format. But to get there, I'm going to give you a historical perspective of what the reformers believed about the glory of God, some of them. Then we will discuss the nature. I want to define what the glory of God is. And then finally, we will look at the importance of the glory of God. I will get you back before lunch this week. so Let's give attention to the historical perspective of God's glory. Now there are some who argue that the doctrines of the Reformation, Scripture, Faith, Grace, Christ, and Glory, were not ignored by the Catholic Church. That is true. So what is the big deal then? There are many who uh, are trying to minimize this break from Rome. I think it was Carl who said it, that um, uh, they were trying to uh, be disobedient in the church. Not at all. If we all believe the same thing, then surely we should have stayed with the Catholic Church. When I say Rome, that is what I mean, Roman Catholic Church. While it is true that the Catholic Church never denounced these doctrines, they believed in it. They also believed that Scripture was the rule of faith and practice for Christian life. They maintain that the, Christ, the, the Catholic Church maintains that. We need faith, we need grace, we need Christ. And it's all done for the glory of God. So then what is the big difference? To that statement I would say, so what? The demons believe that as well. But they are not saved. The fundamental difference between the reformers and the Catholic Church, I'm going to swap it, between the Catholic Church and the reformers is this. It's not merely the affirmation of these truths that mattered to the church. It was the uniqueness of these truths in the church. I hope that makes sense. In other words, it could not be scripture and tradition or pope. It could not be faith and works. It could not be grace and sacraments. It could not be Christ and the church or baptism. But Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, only those things alone can produce a life that would result in the glory of God alone. The reformers came to the conviction that the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant faith were opposed to one another and a break was needed. While well, Luther and some of the other reformers initially just wanted to change some of the actions the practices of the church, they eventually realized, hang on, the fundamental error is not orthopraxy, but orthodoxy. Not what we did, but what we believed, and therefore a clean break was required from Rome. One author describes this difference as follows, quote, while the reformers claim that scripture alone is the authority for Christian life, faith and life, Roman Catholics professed reverence for scripture, but ins- insisted that the church's tradition and the Pope in Rome stood alongside scripture to interpret it in, in, infallibly and to uh, augment its teaching. Take note of that. The tradition... And the Pope had the right to infallibly interpret, but also to augment Scripture. He goes on to say, When the Reformers asserted that justification comes by faith alone, Roman Catholics responded that justification does indeed come by faith, but also by works alongside faith. There are other things that he says, but that is the sum total of what the difference was about. For this reason... The biblical recovery of the gospel, the biblical understanding of justification was needed. Needed to be brought in alignment with what would bring glory to God. Now when it comes to the glory of God, it is not as though Rome outrightly rejected the glory of God. They did not come out and denounce it. They believed that God should receive the glory. However, the fact that Rome deferred to the works of man, the forgiveness produced or sanctioned by a man, and the participation of man in the process of salvation and sanctification shows that they had a defective view of the glory of God. If anything comes from man in the way in which we approach God, God is not glorified. I'm talking about salvation. David Van Drunen in his book, Solely Dear Gloria says, "Quote: Rome of course would never admit to usurping God's glory. Even meritorious human works, it says, are accomplished by divine grace, infused through the sacraments. Big difference there. The church's tradition grow organically from the practice of the apostles, so they believe that the apostles instituted tradition. Rome adds, and the Pope is the servant of servants. I don't know if that's true today. But But the reformers came to understand how such claims, though perennially attractive, ultimately reveal the deceit of the human heart. How we like to think that there's something for us to add to the satisfaction and obedience of Christ. Or to the inspired word of the prophets and apostles. And even that God is wonderfully honored by our contribution. As if God is pleased by what we can do that last line is exactly what is wrong with any works-based religion. If we add anything to the equation of by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, from Scripture alone, then we have fallen to the lie that God is somehow pleased with our spiritual contribution. On the other hand, the reformers recognize That there was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect man who is God blessed forever. And therefore, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can offer God to appease God. For if we do, if we have participation in our salvation, if there is anything that you contribute In the process of salvation to bring glory to God, then glory is not deferred to God, but to the one who works. That means grace is a reward to you and not a gift. In that case then, glory belongs to you and not God. This is what was wrong with the Catholic belief in justification. Somehow we are working with God to please God. What does Isaiah say? Your good works are like what? Filthy rags. The best of the best that we can offer is a horrendous stench before a holy God. He cannot accept it. If the Catholic doctrine regarding our salvation and mediation is true, then glory cannot belong to God. But God says in Isaiah 48, 11, I will not share my glory with anyone. So then, with regards to how God deals with man, there is an element in which he has to be the recipient of glory in what he does. For this reason, the highest purpose of salvation is not our salvation. It is the glory of God. That may shock you. It is not our works. It is not even our eternal destiny. The highest purpose of salvation is the magnification of God's glory first and foremost. Any system that inserts works or human effort or any other medium other than Christ defaces the glory of God and exchanges it into that which glorifies man. Psalm 115 says this Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Amen. The glory of God is the web that connects all the themes of Scripture together. The glory of God is the goal for which all things exist. The glory of God is the purpose and the object for which God saves, loves, and redeems. Therefore, The unifying gem of theologies is the supreme riches of God's glory. Nothing else matters than God's glory. Let me impress this point even further. Our justification is not about us. Yes. Sadly, salvation has become anthropocentric. I think you can figure that out. Anthro is man, centric is centered. Sadly, salvation had become what it means to you, what you can benefit from it. Listen to Romans chapter 5. You can turn there. Therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, Through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God declares us just. When he imputes the righteousness of his holy son. It is done to us. But not for us. There's a big difference in that. It is not because of our worth that would be for us. But because of who God is. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he justifies the ungodly so that he would be the one who justifies. And if he's the one who justifies, he receives the glory. God's divine, sovereign, free, unmerited work of saving sinners brings glory to himself. He demonstrates who he is by showing grace to unworthy, wretched sinners such as you and I. That's the gospel. The gospel is not about you. Paul says it is the gospel of God concerning His Son. It's His gospel. By grace, through faith, are we saved. We are bound to God eternally, not because we earned it, not because we worked for it, but because God guaranteed it through His Son. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So the whole point of justification is to bring us in union with God. How is that mediated? How is that done? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. No works involved. No people involved. God saves for himself, from himself, to himself, so that he would receive the glory. Anything else that gets added into that equation breaks the goal of salvation. Look at this too. Through him also, this is Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in In hope of the glory of God, we rejoice in the fact that we will see and be in the presence of God. John Calvin rightly says, quote, that in the whole discussion concerning justification, the great thing to be attended to is this that the glory, or sorry, that God's glory be maintained entirely and un, unimpaired since the apostle declares it was in demonstration of his own righteousness that he shed his favor upon us, End quote. It's not because of who you are. It's not because you are worth anything. God demonstrates his righteousness and his grace because he receives the glory when he does that. What Calvin is saying is that our justification is not about us but what God does for God so that we may have a relationship with Him. While we say and we claim to believe in the glory of God as the fundamental purpose and a heart and substance of the doctrines of grace, while we believe and say that the entire corpus of Scripture points to this reality, more and more it seems that the glory of man is eclipsing the glory of God. Have your best life now. Jesus died for your happiness. It's one guy said it. Often solely dear Gloria is turned on man. What we do and what we bring. And how we can bring glory to God. That is important. And I will get to that at the end of the sermon. But scripture more often than not magnifies the glory of God. Historically, the reformers understood this glory is not about us. It's about God. Secondly, the nature of God's glory. What is the glory of God? There's two aspects to this. The intrinsic glory and the ascribed glory. So let's look at the intrinsic glory. In essence, the glory of God is essentially about God. Yes, we do need to live for the glory of God. Yes, we do need to do all things, whether it's eating or drinking, to the glory of God. But that is not what the glory of God is about. That's what it demands, but that is not what it's about. The glory of God... When we are speaking about it, we are speaking about the unmatched divine essence of God, who purposes all things to magnify himself. Again, David Vandrian, and I was reading this book um, for a couple of weeks in preparation for the sermon, says quote, "God's glory is to be understood essentially as, the, as one of the divine attributes. Moreover, as one attribute that eminently reflects and reveals the perfection of all the attributes. It is the very essence and nature of God. Quote. In other words, you cannot remove glory from God. He is by himself glorious. That is what is meant by intrinsic glory. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 3. I'm going to back up to verse 1 just to give the context. Long ago at many times and many places, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Whom, that is the Son, He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Often making purification, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high points to christ as the radiance the effulgence or the radiant display of the glory of god the exact representation of what glory is in other words if god is glorious then there is only one other person in all of creation that can demonstrate, that can perfectly put on display what glory looks like, and it is Jesus Christ. See, glory is linked to God's nature, and Jesus is God. Therefore, He alone is the image, the perfect representation of what glory is. relates to his divine essence. What is intended to be utterly, completely theocentric has in these last days become anthropocentric. We have made the glory of God about us. We have turned what essentially belongs to God on us. As if we can add to the glory of God. I'll get back to that later on. Keep that in mind. Do we add to God's glory? Sadly, as often happens, we have become glory thieves. We have stolen that which is uniquely God's and made it ours. That is not to say that God is not interested in our bringing glory to him. He is. But God's glory does not depend upon you. It's intrinsic. It is natural to God to be glorious. So without creation, God is glorious. In creation, God is glorious. Even the fact that man fell in Genesis chapter 3, God remains glorious because glory does not depend upon mankind whether he remains with God or whether he falls. It is independent of mankind. The glory of God is the splendor and the brilliance that is inseparably, inseparably Associated with God's nature. So if God should strip this universe from its existence, He will still be glorious. See Sola Dear Gloria impresses on us that the biblical story of creation, redemption, and consummation is not about you. At the heart of the story is not the creature but the creator who is blessed forever. From creation to consummation, God will be glorified. Beloved, this world is not out of control. Both Old and New Testaments use the word glory for the name of God. He is the glory of Israel, as 1 Samuel 15, 29 says. He is the king of glory, as Psalm 24, 8, 9, and 10 says. And the God of glory. Psalm 29 verse 3. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not yield or give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I said that we've become glory thieves when we give and attribute things, um, attribute glory or worth to anything other than God. In salvation... In the church, anything that deserves more praise or worship than God becomes the glory thief. Whether it is the way we worship, whether it is the preacher, whether it is the style of worship, whether it is the building. God is not interested in those things. Because he exists apart from those things. And his glory will be magnified apart from those things. Glory is the Old Testament word, gavod. Or some would say "gabod," But it's, the Germanic influence changes the B into a V. So the gavod meant heaviness or reputation or importance or significance. When the scripture speaks about God's glory, he's speaking about his reputation, his worth, that which makes him distinct from anything in this world, or creation, I should say. That makes him the only one who is worthy of worship, love, and obedience. Often we say that a, um, a, a good name is, is as good as gold. It is so with God. To God, His name is linked and and connected and inseparable from His glory. So when we defame His name, we defame His glory. When we defame His glory, we defame His name. God possesses this virtue independent of anything and anyone else. Psalm 24 verse 10, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. In other words, there is no one who exists that reigns and rules over everything, that is glorified over everything other than God. Yet, we defer to things and people as if they are the culmination Of our glory, as if they are worth of our praise and our adoration and our obedience. There is one, and it is Christ who is God. We started with Isaiah 48:11. For my own name's sake, I do this. This is why God acts. It is for Himself. This is intrinsic glory. This glory cannot be shared. With anyone else. It is uniquely God's. This is the Godness of God manifested. So he not only possesses it, but he puts it on display. And this relates to the ascribed glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1 The heavens declare what? The glory of God. It ascribes glory to God. Turn over to Psalm 29. So not only is God in and of himself independently glorious, he makes things to glorify him. 29 verse 1, ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength, ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Again, you see name and glory connected. Worship Yahweh in the splendor or the beauty of holiness. All that to say that there is one person who is worthy of worship, there is one person who is worthy of, the, of ascribing worth to, it is God. Creation is created to declare the glorious majesty of God. One more thing. When we bring glory to God, this is that question that I posed earlier, do we add to the glory of God? When we bring glory to God, we do not add to the infinite possession of his inherent glory. We cannot add to who God is. He is by nature glorious. If we do not add to the nature and the essence of God's glory, then what do we do? Number one, we recognize his worth. And number two, we proclaim it that worth that's what we do when we glorify God we recognize that he alone deserves the wor- the worship deserves the glory deserves the praise deserves our love obedience and faithfulness no one else deserves it edward lee the reformed theologian of 1602 he lived between 1602 and 1671 says this quote The external glory, I I called it the ascribed glory, the external glory is also manifest when man and angels do know, love and obey Him and praise Him to all eternity. When His creatures thus glorify God, they do so not by putting any excellency into God, but by taking notice of His excellency and by esteeming Him accordingly. And making manifest our high esteem of him. We not only recognize he deserves it, but we proclaim it. It's not just something that is bubbling up in our hearts, in our recognition or in our minds. But it's something that's on our lips. It's something that uh, changes us. That is what it means to live for the glory of God. In other words, when we bring glory to God, we do not add to the infinite glory he already possesses. We merely recognize it, we magnify it, we amplify it, but we never increase it. Why? Because God is infinitely glorious in and of himself. So then, does God need our ascribed glory? Hmm, Tricky question, eh? Does he need it? No, but he commands it. Does not need it. Revelation 19, take note of this, verse one. You don't have to turn there. Listen, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. It's his. Whether you give it or not, it is his. Salvation and glory. Why are those two connected? They appear elsewhere, and I'll point out that to you. I'll point that out to you in a moment's time. All that God does by his power. Whether he saves or whether he destroys is glorious. All that God does, we struggle with this. Because how can God be glorious or glorified in a world that looks like this? Think about Genesis chapter 6. The flood. God destroyed everything on earth. Did that magnify his glory? Yes, it did. We think of the bad aspects of death. Even in death, God will be glorified. It is important to know that there is a close connection between God's power to save and God's glory. Edward Lee, again, he says, quote, I encourage you to read through these reformers. There's a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and just understanding that God has given to them, considering that they didn't have the resources that we have. Tremendous amount of insight. Take note of what Lee says. Quote, the infinite excellency of the divine essence, glory, is the very essence and nature of God. This constitutes the internal aspect, I call it intrinsic, internal aspects of God's glory, which makes God infinitely worthy of praise, and um, of praised and admired and loved of all. God is thus glorious according to his own knowledge, love and delight in himself, end quote. God is... Glorious by delighting in himself. God does not need us for him to be glorious. Does not need you. That is so antithetical to what this Christian world of today is speaking about. Have you ever heard that God needs your permission to do anything on earth? That is a uh, taken the glory reserved for God and has put it on you. If God has to ask you permission, then you become the object of glory. This intrinsic glory means that God is self satisfying. The infinite glory is woven into his nature. Even if creation does not exist, ye will be glorified. Yet, God chooses to make a glimmer of glory available to us in all of creation and gives us an opportunity to participate in the declaration of His glory. What a glorious opportunity for us as unworthy saved sinners. He reveals His glory in all that He has made. Why? So that He may be marveled at amongst the nations. This is our greatest joy and happiness in life. I read a few months ago, Jesus died so that you may have a happy life. Jesus died so that you may know what it means to possess the glory of heaven on earth. Wow. Do you see how... That which is intrinsically God's has now changed into what man can possess. The glory of heaven, that's God. You will never have the fullness of the glory of heaven. That's intrinsic glory that is is perfectly His all the time, all the time, every existence of time that follows this period of time. It's not yours. So stop being glory thieves the pursuit of God's glory is intrinsically connected to our happiness. Let me put it this way. You will never be fully happy in this life if the pursuit of God is not the pursuit of your life. Why? Because if you pursue what brings ultimate glory to God, that would be your greatest gain in life. What do you think brings the greatest glory to God? Let me rephrase it. Who do you think brings the greatest glory to God? Jesus Christ. So finding Christ is finding life, is finding God. That brings glory to God. All creatures, every star, every atom is made so that you would marvel at God. So whether you look at the vastness of the galaxy or the intricacies of a molecule, whether you look through a microscope or a telescope, that exists so that you would turn not to yourself or say, wow, look how great evolution is. That is stealing glory from God. We behold it and when we see it, we should say how marvelous and great and glorious is our God. If our answer is, well, look how cool nature is, you've robbed God from glory. If your answer is, look how marvelous evolution is, you've robbed glory from God. If you defer glory to anything else other than God, you are a glory thief. When we acknowledge His glory and His greatness, we are not adding to who He is. We are merely declaring we are loudspeakers of who He is. So we have seen the historical perspective of the Reformation. I should say the glory of God. We have looked at the nature of what this glory is. But now let's look at the importance of this glory. Our first importance. The glory of God... Is the pinnacle, the zenith, the summit of all things. Romans chapter 11. This will be our last section. 11. Look at verse 33. I'm going to read 33 to 36. This passage. is the logical culmination of all the theological treaties that Paul has expressed from chapter 1 right up to chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 33. Oh, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His ways, and how inscrutable... His ways. Sorry, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? The answer is no one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him. Are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Wow. Amen. This doxological expression is not the beginning of what Paul is going to talk about with regards to Amen or to love. But it's the end. Considering the righteousness of God. Made manifest. The wrath of God revealed. The love of God demonstrated. The grace of God bestowed. The power of God experienced. The strength of God provided. The law of God fulfilled. The election of God magnified. And the patience of God displayed. That's chapters 1 through 10. Now after all that. We have the summary statement. The entirety of this book folds in on the, this portion of scripture. How we live after this, chapter 12 through 16, and what causes us to live that way, converges on this portion of Paul's writing. Understand the pivotal position this passage hand, has It's the crescendo, the grand crescendo of Paul's manifesto of the gospel. This is it. God's glory is supremely God-centered. Listen again. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Any person mentioned in that? No. Any work mentioned in that? No. Any pope mentioned in that? No. Any church mentioned in that? No. Any great preacher mentioned in that? No. All things exist for God. You could see it this way. To minimize, distort, or amend the work of God in salvation in any aspect... Is to steal glory away from God. The walls of the superstructure of justification, which is sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, will not be complete. They will not make sense if the canopy, the roof, is not so, uh, solely dear Gloria. Keep that in mind. The roof of the gospel is the glory of God. Everything works to that end. So then, if all the parts of the whole fail, if we have a crack in the wall of of, uh, scripture, faith, grace, and Christ, if we have any kind of insertion into that, there is no roof if we amend what God has given with regards to salvation and we add to it, there is no glory to God because God cannot be glorified in what we add to what he has given. For what the law could not do, weakened by sinful flesh, God did in sending his son. No one can make himself right with God. The law in itself is good, but nobody because of sin can be perfected by the law. So God had to fulfill the law perfectly, and he did it in Christ. What God requires, God alone provides. God requires perfect righteousness in order for you to have a relationship with him. He requires perfection in order for you to know him. Remember what Jesus says? Um, You have to, in Matthew chapter 5 or 7, you have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes. Therefore be what? Holy as your father in heaven is holy. What does God require for us to have a relationship with him? Perfect holiness. Is there anybody here that can attain to that? No. So that's why if God requires that he has to provide and so he does. Perfect holiness and perfect righteousness is provided in the son. So that we may have a relationship with him. See, in order for God to be glorified, he must be the initiator, the, the architect and the object of what is being done. So Paul concludes in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. What is he talking about? Salvation. Since God is the sovereign savior of mankind. Since God is the only architect of salvation. And since for a time period he has moved Israel aside and has grafted in the Gentiles, while for a time period, for a short period of time, that is true, God still receives the glory. God's work in electing, saving, preserving, calling and glorifying undeserving sinners. That's what is in view. In other words, no man knows better than God. That is what he means when he says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the, uh, uh, um, of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is divine wisdom and knowledge displayed in Salvation. In other words, God demonstrates his infinite wisdom and knowledge in how he chooses to save people. It doesn't make sense to us. Why on earth would he elect people before the foundation of the world? People who would otherwise not choose him. His judgments and his ways are determined by him alone and not by anyone. That's the purpose of the statement. Who has known the mind of God? Nobody does. Who has been his counselor? Nobody is. In other words, nobody can tell him what to do. Who has given a gift to him? Who has brought anything to him that would be worthy of his acceptance? That he may be repaid. Now that can go either way. That God will be repaid or the person would be repaid. I lean to the latter. Could be that what God has in view here is that who has brought him a gift So that God would repay that guy for what he has brought to God. Nobody. In other words, this is what wisdom and knowledge looks like. God acts despite who man is. And in doing so, he glorifies himself in all that he does. God's glory is the logical outcome, the goal, the means, the foundation, the purpose for which everything in creation exists so that he may save sinners and magnify himself in doing so. So salvation exists for God's glory. What we have here is God-centered theology. Chapters 1 through 11 up to verse 32 is God-centered theology. All that God is and all that he, he chooses to do is made known in chapters 1 through 11 verse 32 this God-centered theology Paul says and shows results in a God-centered doxology for from him and through him and to him are all things let me say it this way all that God reveals in chapters 1 through chapter 11 is how God chooses to save undeserving sinners isn't that what it's about justification the righteousness of Jesus Christ, imputed to unjust sinners, all of that relates to salvation. Even the wrath of God in verse 18, that is being revealed against ungodliness. But how does God make an escape for mankind? Verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ, for it is what? The power of God unto what? Salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The entire book focuses on God's means of salvation. So keep that in mind. All that this this theology that Paul is focusing on is salvation by means of God's work. God-centered theology on this topic results in God-centered doxology because of this topic. Let me say it in a different way. When we come to understand how God saves, The only natural response is to do what Paul does here. If you come to understand that it is God who commends his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If you understand that God poured out his wrath on the Son so that he may give his righteousness, the righteousness of the Son, to you so that you may be made right with him, if you come to understand that there is one response. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. There is one response when you come to understand that God alone is the author, the initiator, and the one who causes salvation. One response, and it is to give glory to Him alone. Everything in this passage as well as in this book focuses on God. Now take a look at at chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present Your body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to what? God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, from salvation to sanctification, it is God. Your entire existence is in view here. God saves and he sanctifies so that you may live for him. Now listen carefully. All that God does, God does for God. God saves you to himself, from himself, and for himself. Remember that. To himself, through his son, from himself, because of the wrath that is to come and, what did I miss? To himself, which is to himself. By himself, that's one. Because he is the one on the cross. God is God-centered. That breaks our modern theology. Because a lot of our modern songs is anthropocentric. It's about me. Again, glory thieves. We think of my worship, my trials, my work, my effort, my song. Stop it. There is one who needs to receive the glory. If we are singing about God's grace, you are not the object. It is God. When we sing about God's glory, we are not the object. It is God. God is the object of our worship and our glory and our obedience. Now with regards to what Paul is writing here in Romans eleven. We may not fully understand God's sovereign election, and I hope we, as a church, are patient with those of you who do not believe that. But our prayer is that you would have renewed eyes to look at Scripture, because it is this theology that results in this doxology. Yes, Scripture as a whole, Scripture as a whole, reveals the glory of God. But what Paul writes about here in Romans 11, sorry, in Romans, the book of Romans, relates to God's salvation, what he does to save his people. We fully understand that. We understand that it is him who chooses us despite who we are. There is one response. To glorify him. Now, let me prove this from Ephesians. I have some time. I'm not going to preach for an hour and a half, trust me. I, I Give me... A few more minutes. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to prove to you that God saves for himself, by himself, and to himself for his glory. I think I've made it theologically. I've made that point. Let me show you that scripture absolutely supports that. Ephesians chapter 1. Take note in verse 3. There is something that I'm going to repeat, and I want you to, t- to take note of it. If you have a pen, pencil, highlighter, draw a line underneath us. To the praise of His glory. That is the key phrase in the entirety of the section. To the praise of His glory. Let's read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, what? Chose us, in him before the foundation of the world. Now the question is why? It's going to give us some reasons. Number one, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, you will never be holy if he doesn't choose you in him to be holy. In love, he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, you cannot be adopted if it's not done through the person of His Son, according to the purpose of His will, which is what? To the praise of His glorious grace. Let me pause there. What you have here is the revelation that God the Father chose to save people through the means of the death of His Son. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glory. Why does God choose to elect? To magnify His glory. Let's read on. Verse 7. In Him, this is the Son, we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of our sins. Jump down to verse 11. In Him, still the Son, we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, that is the Father, who works all things according to, his, to the counsel of His will, which takes us back to verse uh, 5. So that, why does He do that? We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the what? Praise of His glory. What is He saying? We are redeemed through Christ. For the praise of his glory. Redemption is for the purpose of the glory of God. Jump down to verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, you believe the truth, and as a result of that, you were sealed. But take notice what he says. Who is God? The guarantee of our inheritance, which is future, until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of His glory. All three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in your salvation. Why? Because it brings them glory. You find here that the election is not because of you. The redemption is not because of you. The sealing is not because of you. But it is because God is glorified in saving unjust, undeserving, decrepit, depraved sinners such as you and I. We don't deserve it. So when God saves sinners like us, there is one response to him be the glory forever. Amen. Scripture clearly indicates that the entirety of our salvation is not brought forth for us, but it is brought forth by God for the praise of his glory. Here's what I want you to understand. Both Paul in Romans and in Ephesians gives this vision of theology. Sound theology results in the proper doxology. The only way you can bring glory to God is if you fully and truly understand who God is and what God does. A proper understanding of who God is must drive us to a proper response to who he is, that is worship. This shows us the God-centeredness of God in all things. All things. So the prepositional phrases in Romans 11 verse 36. Let me go through that quickly. There are three. From him means that God is the author of the, and the architect of all things. In the context here that relates to salvation... The through him, the prepositional phrase, through him means that God alone accomplishes all things. So it not only comes from him, he's the one who accomplishes it. And then to him means that he's the purpose of all things. Again, context, salvation. So all things that God does is from him, through him, and to him. And that is why Paul can say, to him be the glory forever. Amen. This is humbling. Understand, a lot of theology today is focused on what you bring to the table. The only thing that you contribute to salvation is the sin that causes the need of your salvation. That's the only thing that you bring to the table of God's salvation. See, if the gospel we preach is not the gospel that he gave, if the means that we preach is not the means that God sanctions everything, then there is not a smidgen of glory in it for God. If God, if justification is not thoroughly monogistic, that is solely and holy from God, then we have stolen glory from God. So whatever system you believe, you can choose to believe, but understand if you believe that you chose God apart from God, you have stolen the glory from the hands of God. The gospel message is salvation that is granted by God to sinners, for himself, by himself, to himself, from himself. This destroys every man-made, self-exalting, works-based salvation. So then, importance. If we fail to uphold script Scriptura, if we fail to maintain sola fide, if we fail to profess sola gratia, if we fail to affirm solus Christus, then we will fail to bring glory to God. Make sense? If we remove that from the processes of justification, you do not have the canopy on the roof, or at least the roof on the house. Soli Deo gloria is not about what we do or about us. It is about God and God Alone, but at the same time, God has given you an opportunity to participate in and with creation to bring glory to Himself. Recognize who He is and magnify Him for who He is and what He has done. Father, we are thankful to you for the great grace and patience that you have demonstrated toward us. We understand that we do not deserve your mercy, we do not deserve your grace, we do not deserve salvation therefore, there is nothing that we can offer in exchange for our souls. But we do not have to. You gave your perfect son to be the offering, to be the solution, to be the sacrifice for us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be gracious, gracious this morning for those who do not know you. For those who have never heard the gospel. For those who are are pushing against this theology. Against your word. Against your glory. We pray Lord that you would soften their hearts. Crush them by your glory. And open them to see who you are. Oh God. Be glorified in the salvation of sinners today. Be glorified in the lives of your people today. As we come to live lives that are centered upon you. Father. Crush the self-exalting pride that permeates our churches. That our hearts and minds may be set upon you, that you may receive the worth, the glory, the praise, the honor that is due to your name. Let us say with clear conscience with Paul, for from him, through him, and to him, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen.